2: listening to bite Into It on 3RRR. Uh, we're super excited. Uh, on Byte tonight, uh, we'll be discussing all of the good stuff. Computers, new technology, uh, play, uh, open source. Um, we're very much looking forward to spending some time with you. Um, play is important to human beings and to lots of species for a whole host of reasons. It helps us to learn, uh, to be creative, to find new ideas and to express ourselves. Uh, sometimes games uh, help us to be somebody else as well. Uh, Play is often thought of something as childish that we do as an activity or a distraction. But uh, a new theory of play suggests it's an approach to living and can be applied in many aspects of our lives. Uh, Laura Summers, great to have you in the studio. Uh, How are you playful in in your life
1: generally? Mm, Such a good question. Um, I will say I'm quite a physical player. I quite enjoy a skip. It may be a little bit silly. I know that people associate skipping with five-year-olds, but I I quite enjoy gallivanting down the street like a moron or just running for no good reason. Um, I also really enjoy wordplay. I think words are really important and it's really fun when you subvert their meaning or you say something and you kind of go, ha-ha, there's this great double meaning underneath that. I didn't even think about it until I've said it.
2: I always get in trouble for wordplay and like if Mm. somebody strings together an interesting combination I'm out of the conversation and just thinking about that and and Mm. kind of what it means Mm -hmm. and I guess running is like a really kind of primal kind of thing like running away from stuff or like you know running from shadows and stuff
1: yeah, exactly, or like a little adrenaline burst, like, hey, you know, I've got energy, I'm just having a little run. And you don't see many, you know, people in corporate attire on the street sort of just having a little run for fun, but I'll, I'll do that in my Converse and my Tracky Ducks, because that's where I to work anyway, so.
2: We might have to talk about that uh, in a little while. Mm-hmm. Why, why do people in suits not play? Mm-hmm. Uh, tonight, we're joined on the show by Miguel Sicart, uh, who is an associate professor at the U- IT University in Copenhagen. Uh, his research on games and play uh, combines philosophy with design research. Uh, He's offered a a series of books on the subject of play So we'll be speaking to him in in a short while Um, Publicly available community managed software and development Has been well represented uh, on Byte over the years Um, Continues to be so Uh, We decided to check in on some of the tensions between open source idealism uh, and business reality. Um, What have we learned from LeftPad? What are some of the things that we should be um, raising uh, at the moment? Uh, We'll be joined on the show tonight by Rick DeBoer and Chris Burgess to tease apart some of the more uh, pressing issues uh, around the open source community. Before we talk about those things, though, we wanted to give you a few news items, uh, things that we thought were important to, to bring up. Um, it's always interesting when one of the biggest tech brands in the world um, starts to go backwards. Um, what's mm-hmm. going on here, Laura?
1: So, Apple, for the first time in 13 years, has posted a year over year decline in revenue. And obviously, you have to take this with a grain of salt because they're still one of the biggest, and most profitable tech companies in the world to date. So, um, to give you some numbers, it um, brought in $50.6 billion in revenue for the second quarter of 2016 and $10.5 billion in profits compared to the previous quarter 58 billion in revenue and 13.6 billion in profits during this period of last year so that's a 13% drop um, and obviously a lot of people are speaking to iPad sales not being as high as expected as well as the iPad 6 uptake or sorry the um, iPhone 6 rather uptake not being maybe quite as high as was expected um, but certainly um, the other big issue for Apple is simply the fact of market share they have so much already they just can't continue to see the same growth over time because there simply are not the bodies in the world to buy their product.
2: Yeah, I, I guess mm. the, the biggest story is they're, they're, they're almost at saturation and kind of just those few extra people who never had one are, are picking, picking them up. But, mm. um, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not the disaster that the media would like to have us believe.
1: No, I mean, I'm sure that whenever you're whenever you're a big gun, people sort of think, hmm, how can we poke holes in that story? Like, we're bored of the Apple success story. What can we do with it now? Um, but certainly I think, like, the investors maybe can get prepared for some plateaus in revenue and sales rather than seeing that kind of same meteoric growth that they saw especially like around that 26 2006 2007
2: era yeah yeah Mm -hmm. it it certainly was a a massive change for how we experienced um, lots of things you know internet Mm. um, uh, applications Um, it was a big change
1: internet on your phone, it's happening (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, another thing that is interesting in in terms of uh, innovation and and the development um, cycle is battery technology Um, today there was a um, well it's one of the biggest things um, that we have to confront, how do we um, power up these little devices that we love, the smaller the better, Um, the smaller they are the more we can stick them into small places, the more we could stack them up. Um, It's been one of the hardest things to overcome, but a new um, project from the University of Washington sensor lab um, has addressed this in an interesting way. Uh researchers there have created a thing called the WISP or Wireless Identification Sensing Platform, which is a, a combination sensor and computing chip that doesn't need a battery uh, or wired power source. Um, it actually sucks in radio waves emitted from a standard off-the-shelf um RFID reader. Um so yeah, just the same things that you use to kind of deter shoplifters and like you know, stick in books and um tags on um clothing and stuff like that. So um yeah, it's not designed to compete with chips um, in phones or laptops or anything like that. It um it's actually Actually got this really interesting way uh, of um, uh, communicating with other devices. Do you, you were... You can. You were more excited about this than I was, so I'll give it to you.
1: They they suggested that you could um, that the chip was actually able to um, communicate with other computers by scattering backscattering incoming radio signals, and they compared that to trying to um, conduct a Morse code conversation by reflecting light with a handheld mirror, which is kind of a crazy and maybe low tech um, compared to some other, um, say, Bluetooth enabled chips out there, a way of communicating with other computers. But it means that they can be reprogrammed on the fly. And again, as you said, that they're not powered. You don't have to have a power outlet, and you don't have to have a battery pack. Um, and it's a it's a pretty interesting and I'd say innovative way. Um for this chip to actually send and receive commands and certainly as we know that um the third world coming into mobile devices and um you know that that being the next new market share happening in the next sort of five to ten years um seeing devices that not necessarily are like the sexiest new tech but more the most pragmatic and um easiest to adopt and cheapest to build will be will be probably what's big happening in tech
2: yeah, I think one of the the biggest applications for this that they're excited about was um, a fully realized Internet of Things, where all of these dumb objects um, get a, a bit of smarts. I mean, it's kind of there's two sides to that as well. There's all this mm. stuff that does that doesn't need to be smart that mm. can become instantly smart because the, the economics of it change and the and the physics of it change. Um, be interesting. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Mm. Um One of the things that is uh, also very interesting is a series that's coming up, uh, Design and Play, uh, which is being launched uh, tomorrow at the RMIT Design Hub uh, here in Melbourne. Uh, Miguel Sicart is an associate professor at the IT University in Copenhagen. Uh, his research on games and play uh, combines um, all sorts of interesting things. He's the author of The Ethics of Computer Games, um, Beyond Choices, and most recently, Play Matters. Miguel, thanks for joining us in the studio.
0: Thanks for having
2: me. What, what do you think you've noticed about how we play and are we uh, a playful lot here in Melbourne compared to uh, where you've been observing it around the world?
0: Well, I, th- I think you're a very playful lot here. I mean, it's, it's been fascinating just to walk around and see how many people take the streets as a place for expression. So skateboarding, but also uh, music performance. I think that, that sort of uh, idea of having the public space as a, as a space of, of performance is very playful in itself.
2: Uh do you what's your favorite way to engage in play in, in cities where, wherever you are what's the most obvious
0: way Oh that's a that's a good one. I think um well that's uh, you are not supposed to ask difficult questions. <laughs> you can, uh, be, you no, can no, be no you no you can
2: so be in the closet about it and you can be on your phone that's okay.
0: No no no. I think um I I so one of the things I like is is uh, practicing the old art of, of yes walking around and getting lost. Mm. Um having sort of You know, it's so easy now to walk around and then you're just like, Where am I? I open my phone, Google Maps and but just this idea of of getting lost, like not knowing where you are. It's a it's a form of play that I that I enjoy very much when I go to any new place.
2: We probably Mm -hmm. did that as kids, you know, in the park, you know, how can you get lost, lose your parents for half an hour, something like that?
0: And it it has this kind of lovely mix that only play can do, which is at the same time it's it's scary but also fundamentally pleasurable and it's it's in that tension that, that we, we thrive and play thrives
2: We we talked a little bit earlier, Laura about um, why do, when we get older and um, maybe a little bit stuffier or, or kind of more set in our ways, we, we don't play so much and we don't run down the street. Do, do you have a theory on, on that at all?
0: Not really because, so, so there's this idea that, that when we get older we don't play, but what what happens is that when we get older we don't play as children play, but we do all kinds of other types of play that are not children-like or childish. So I think one of the things that I'm trying to do with my work is to expand the notion of play so, so we don't just try to recognize in adults what children are doing. So, um, it's true. We don't, we don't, you know, just like jump around on the streets or, okay, maybe we do that.
1: Laura <laughs> um, <laughs> well, um, does that. Let's, go, let's charged. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we do other things, right? We have all these kind of social rituals that are very play-like. Um, even, even sort of the basics of just like hanging out with friends has all kinds of small forms of play. And, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. what the problem is that we have this kind of social discourse that says like adults should not play. And that's, that's, that's kind of just wrong.
1: Mm-hmm. Also, if you're wearing high heels, you're not going to really run down the street. Like there's certain sort of physical constraints. I,
0: I try not to run when I'm wearing high heels. <laughs> wearing your high
1: heels yeah. well, you know, fair
0: enough. But wearing high mm-hmm. heels is a form of play.
1: This is very true. And yeah. then I suppose you could look at drag queens and say well, you know, like that whole embodiment and performance of gender is a form of play you know like throwing throwing sort of like conventional norms up on their head
0: absolutely and exploring all other kinds of kinds of, of, of you know forms and shapes in a, in a, in a celebratory way mm-hmm. so and mm-hmm. I think that's that has a sort of a root on on the carnival of play that it's very very expressive and very human at the same mm-hmm. time so yeah.
1: do you think there are types of play that adults do that children don't do like are there things that are specific to us
0: yeah most of them happen in Sort of kind of bedrooms and places like that so mm. so there's there's all kinds of embodied um expressions that adults have mm-hmm. as as like sex that that can be called play, and the children obviously don't practice at least not in the same ways mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Uh, so, as part of your uh, responsibilities while you're here in Melbourne, you will be um, delivering an address at um, Design and Play, and after that, uh, it'll be continuing. Your, I guess your engagement with um, with Melbournians, um as part of a grant on the idea of games on games of being mobile, uh, which is being supported by uh, a few centres and, and bodies uh, here in Melbourne. What's the idea around games of being mobile? What does that mean?
0: So the idea is um, what. The goal is to explore um, games beyond this sort of the conventional screen, keyboard, mouse, setup, so games that are everywhere, games that, that expand beyond the constraints of the, of the physical technologies that we have. So the idea is what can we do with technology that, that sort of goes beyond the conventional uses of, of computers.
2: Mm. So what are some of the more obvious kind of devices or things that we use to play that aren't kind of how we consider c- sort of computer gaming or video gaming? What's What are some of the things that you think are, are interesting or, or, or teach us about ourselves?
0: So in terms of, so one thing that I'm very, very interested in is urban play. Mm. So how can we use, um, or how can we play in the city, mm. particularly using new technologies as a way of reclaiming. Uh, urban spaces. Mm. So there's a there's an interesting movement about this in in uh, England around um, Bristol where where they've been experimenting with urban play for a really long time, and they even have like uh, grants for it. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that's that's one area that I find particularly rewarding. Um, instead of I- instead of getting you know located in in a basement with mm. a computer, going out and using computer play to reclaim urban spaces. That's, that's really fascinating. And I'm also very fascinated by mobile games, um, mm. not necessarily because, you know, we all sit in the metro and just look at our phones, mm. but because they become this, this sort of ritual where we go back and again and again and we check it up and it's kind of, it stops being just a game and it becomes more like a ritual or a companion. And I think that's a, that's a very rich area to explore.
2: Hmm. do you think um i don't know if you'll if you'll uh, have a chance when you're here but um docklands is kind of uh almost like a doubling of the the melbourne kind of city space and it's a fairly new project it's a a long-term thing that's going to take time to get people there and you know businesses and and so forth but they've put a lot of um thought uh into um public sculpture and places where people should be able to get together and experiment and do things Mm -hmm. but it's you don't often see people taking up that opportunity. Either either the scale's wrong or... Is is there something around permission to play? How, how do adults get permission to play, do you think, in, in public spaces?
0: Well, I think this connects with something that you were mentioning before. Like, as adults, we don't play. And I think we, we've we been raised with the idea that, you know, you, you turn... 14, 15, you have to stop playing in public. Mm. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. Stop embarrassing yourself. I think we need to stop that. There's nothing necessarily in the architecture of a city that stops you from playing in it. Look at skateboarders. Mm. Just, they just love playing everywhere. Yeah. And uh, tracers that do parkour, they also mm. run everywhere. So, so we need to get the spirit of these communities and pull it out to everybody. So mm-hmm. just remind, playing is not being a child. Playing is being human. And that's what we need to reclaim.
1: So, do you see technology as being a way to invite people or give them permission to do that play? Like, do you see that as being what what its role is? In
0: I think so. I think um, one of one of the outcomes of, of computing technology and particularly the, the success of, of smartphones is that seeing people in public playing a game is not a taboo anymore. Hmm. Of course, you know they are playing under phones and they're playing Crossy Road. But if we can just take that, they take that acceptance and kind of. Play with it, explore it. See what happens if they are actually playing with each other. What happens if there's something in the environment that reacts to the, their presence with the phone? Then that that excuse for play it's already there. So 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 it's kind of it's a it's our little um, horse of Troy that w- that we can use to sort of infiltrate and, 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 and really explore new new ways of play. This this. It's given us permission to play, Mm -hmm. the fact that that we can play with computers as cronoms. So let's take that as an excuse and see what we can do with it. Mm. One of
2: the the books that um, you you have brought into the world, um, I believe, is Beyond Choices, the design of ethical gameplay. There's um, a couple of interesting ideas in there. D- designing games, um, how important is it to, I guess, sit down with people, take them through the process, understand what they want? Um, what do you see as the role of design in, in, in,
0: in bringing better games out there? That's a great question. So um, most of the time, I'm, I teach game design, mm-hmm. um, and most of the time my students come with the idea that game design is just like making these these game systems that, that are very tight and, and just interacting with glorify the spreadsheets it's great and i always try to convince them that it's wrong that what the main material for game design is people mm. you have to understand how people have fun how people enjoy frustration because mm. we we enjoy being frustrated mm. only to a certain extent we also what what makes us tickle what 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 makes us really really deeply mad and angry mm. where do we play so um to me, the, at the core of game design is understanding how people want to play. And, and that's, uh, that's a, a little bit the idea that I push in almost all my work. How, try to understand why and how do we play as humans. And then the rest is just machines.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I think we, um, we had one guest um, recently who suggested that the best way to figure these things out is to make a paper version of it first or, you know, build it with boxes or, mm. or play it with balls or something like that. Is there a process that you try and teach your students of, of how you should um, understand people first and observe them?
0: Yeah, so um, the process I try to teach them is relatively independent of what material they use. Um, I don't care if they use a computer or if they use pen and paper, but the first thing they have to make for me is a toy. Because toys are, you know, we love games and games have this kind of central role in our culture, but toys are actually much more, in my opinion, much more interesting objects to work with because they are at the same time very open and very generative. They don't have so many rules, but they are still instruments for play. So what I tell my Mm -hmm. students is find me the minimum toy you enjoy and you can communicate this play experience and then build whatever game you want around that toy. Never forget that toy at the core of play.
1: So you're finding the minimum viable toy.
0: It's absolutely it's the minimum great. viable toy. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, can you tell us what some of your favorite toys were um, growing up? Like, uh, if you if you did play games, what, what kind of games were you playing with, and what what were the toys?
0: So I'm um, I I I've always enjoyed role playing. So anything mm-hmm. that had to do with like action figures, dolls, characters, mm-hmm. um, they were they were very much my my favorite. And I, I like balls of all kinds of sizes and colors. So. For sports, for any kind of activity, mm. um, I think those would be my my favorite. Any anything that has to do with role playing, actually. Mm. And now I'm sort of you know, thanks to having kids, I have the, the opportunity of exploring all kinds of other toys. So I'm I'm rediscovering my love for Lego, um, which is more than a toy; it's a form of of expression um, this, uh, I don't know I want to be a kid these days they, they have so many fun toys
1: mm, don't they just yeah. I saw a great art piece um, a man who's going around finding um, old broken down buildings and filling them in with pieces of Lego
0: oh that's have great yes. yeah
1: I think in Berlin and a few other European cities yeah. um, and I think that's such a great example of using like a toy and play and intersecting that with art and urban spaces um, yeah. and sort of showing that buildings can be renewed in a playful way and it's It's not just sort of serious architecture.
0: Um, mm. That's a fantastic example of of these kind of creative, generative capacities of play through toys, Mm -hmm. not not necessarily through games, which is what we default to.
2: Melbourne's a, a fairly good city for, um, um, uh, I guess, conferences and getting together and talking about these kinds of things. Like, What, what sort of city do we want to be and what sort of ideas do we want to have? Is, is there a role for um, administrators or the government in making sure play is is part of society or is it up to us to kind of make it happen and do it for
0: ourselves? Well, it's, it's both. Everybody's responsible for making everything more playful but i think governments have a have a responsibility in not cutting down the expressive possibilities of play and particularly not not narrowing narrowing them down it's very easy to think about particularly public spaces as spaces that are uh, <laughs> almost rented out for corporations and therefore allowing Corporations to dictate what can happen in the public space. And I think w- one of the most important things uh, any government can do is to make sure that the public space stays public with everything that it implies. And, and perhaps one of the most important things that it implies is that people can play as they want in those spaces.
2: Mm-hmm. i do love the idea of um the city council or somebody just throwing out uh the big um we had a bag of lego it was like a um library bag of lego and like my parents would throw it out like uh, every afternoon after school and my sister and i just like swarm all over it and pick it out of the carpet and so forth but mm-hmm. you know the idea of um it's like
1: the pinata of toys just go make something here's a space go do it
2: do it here's yeah. those big great green flat places and, mm-hmm. uh, and and go crazy afterwards mm-hmm. Um, so, in terms of your um, lecture and, and masterclass, what are some of the things that you're most interested to, to tell us about um, while you're here in Melbourne?
0: So, I'm, I'm going to be presenting a lot of new uh, work I've been doing. Um, most of my previous work, up to my latest book, Play Matters, has tried to pull the human in the centre of the equation about play. And I, even though I want to keep that, that presence, I'm now inquiring, why do we play with computers? So... N- if play is is this kind of fundamentally human form of expression, why is it that we play with these fundamentally stupid machines? (laughs) Um, What is it that computers have that makes us play with them? Um, And that's a little bit something that I'm going to explore uh, in depth. It has to do with, I think, sort of the intuition I have now is that when we play, we perform on the world the same operations that computers perform on the world. We kind of simplify it, narrow it down, for expressive purposes or in the case of computers for computational purposes and we have intuitively figured out that relation and that's why every time there's a new technology or computing technology we build a new form of play through it
1: so mm-hmm. That's often the way we introduce them or they get discovered. Like with VR, you know, VR is very much a play tool still. like I don't know there's many corporate sort of um, implementations of it yet, but for, for experiencing stories, certainly. Yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. So every time there's a, there's a new technology... So the history of computing is very complicated because it starts as a war machine, as it's a tool for killing other people. But as soon as we stop killing other people massively... Um, you know, it's we have we had these mainframes in the 1950s, and the first thing that the hackers at MIT do is a video game, and then almost every step of the progression from those huge mi- mainframes to to portable computer and and you know broad, broadband has been parallel to and advanced in um, in in play expression. So you know, for instance, we we suddenly have broadband and and we can stream video live on the internet. So we have. Uh, Twitch, and why why not something else? No, no, Twitch. Right, we want to show how we play, and -hmm. we want to. Then we make Twitch Plays Pokemon, which is was my first, you know, my favorite thing from last year, uh, where people just gathered up on Twitch to play Pokemon kind of together of sorts it's, so, so it's this kind of there's, there's, there's a close relation that we haven't explored and I think that if we tap on it it's going to be very productive, mm-hmm. not necessarily for game design but for making most of our interactions with computers much more engaging and much more playful
2: it, uh, it sounds like something that uh, we should all get along to um, if you have a chance. Um, even if you can't make it to the opening tomorrow, uh, Design and Play, um, the exhibition will be on from the 29th of April to the 14th of May. Uh, Miguel, thanks for coming in tonight and having a bit of a chat.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me here.
2: And uh, and we'll follow it um, closely. I um, hope you enjoy your time while you're here. Thanks. It is 7.25, you're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R. Hey, one thing that may not have escaped your attention is it is April, uh, probably the bestest month, I will say, um, having a birthday in the month of April. Um, It's also the time when we have April Amnesty, um, where it's a chance for you to Um, I guess renew your love uh, to the station or if you've never subscribed to um, do so, in fact. Um, There's lots of awesome prizes up for grabs and it's probably a better time to actually get in and and sort of um, bend your wallet a little bit because um, probably a few less people do it than they do during Radiothon and there's still heaps of awesome prizes. Um, if you jump on the website, you can see what's going. Um, if you don't know m- too much about it, um, if you're swizzing around on the dial or, or sort of opened up somebody else's browser on your laptop, um, a full subscription is $75. Concession is $40. Um, business is 150 If you're really passionate, um, subscribe for 125 bucks, And you have roughly three more days to do it. Um, a full subscription is only forty four a week, so it's less than a cup of coffee, half a cup of coffee uh, even. So um, definitely do that. You're listening to Bot to it on triple r this week with laura and warren and joe uh, pushing our buttons at the moment uh, you just heard from waterfalls and the track empty arms are kinder i totally agree um, as mentioned earlier uh, in the intro um, we do like to check in with um, what's going on in the open source community in melbourne and further abroad uh, to do that we've got a couple of guests in the studio tonight and i am might pass over to laura to talk a little bit about this
1: So we thought we might um, have a bit of a check-in about how open source goes in a business context as well as just in the idealistic abstract. And to chat about that, we've got Chris Burgess, who's a web technology consultant from Melbourne, um, co-founder of an agency called Clickify and also WordPress editor for SitePoint. He's also very involved in the WordPress communities and gets around to a lot of meetups and is an overall cool guy. So hi, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And um, also joining us is Rick DeBoer, who has been in various software roles for the past couple of decades. Um, He's also an ex-colleague of mine and is a totally rad dude, I can tell you. Um, And he has got a lot of strong feelings about open source as it works for businesses as well as for the individual developer, and has had a lot of experience, um, particularly in the Drupal world, which is very community-driven, very open, and very generous, but also maybe not always that pragmatic, shall we say. So so we're going to get him to chat a bit more about that and tell us about his experiences. Um, thanks, Rick, for coming on.
2: Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, I think before we do that, we might actually have a special sting ready to go. This couldn't go unremarked on, so let's hit it. Open source. What, what is it good for? Absolutely, absolutely
1: everything.
3: everything. Uh-huh. Open source. Oh. Yeah. Open source. <laughs>
1: What, what is, is it good for? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely everything. everything. Uh-huh. Open source. So really, what is open source good for? Maybe that's the question we can start with. Um, so, Chris, would you like to, to start by giving us your, your overall thoughts on open source, um, you know, good or bad, pros and cons, off you go.
4: Sure. Um, well, I think my sort of, uh, you know, history or sort of career in IT has been pretty much uh Based around open source, so uh, I've probably got a bit of a bias. I have a soft spot for open source, although I think, um, as Rick and I were talking before the uh, we sort of came in, is that you always have to look for the right tool for the right job. And the you know the line of what is open source and what isn't used to be very clear. Now it's a lot murkier. So everything's a big you know pot with you know, mixed mixture of soup and different licensing, uh, different models, different types of, um, ways, different projects are run. So I think with anything, when you're making a decision, when it comes to business, you need to look at all your options and do your homework and whether it's, um, in open source, it's no, it's no different at all.
1: Mm. So open source, not the magic panacea. Absolutely. Mm. Fair enough. Rick, would you like to uh, give us a little intro?
3: Absolutely. I, um, I had a few thoughts on the, on, the, on the way here and I jotted them down because there's, there's quite a lot to uh, open source. To me, open source is uh, alive, but it's not well. Um, let me start with some of the positives. Um, open source allows you to do what you love. Uh, open source is a vehicle to put your heart in what you choose to do. It also embraces large scale because many hands uh, make light work of big projects. Potentially, the quality is better because you've got many brains for clever solutions. By the same token, it could be um, more secure because you've got more eyes to look at security holes. Open source also promotes a sense of community uh, spirit and working towards a common goal. Many souls work together for what is shared by all. And finally, it gives recognition. contributors enjoy the satisfaction of having their names out there and a portfolio of projects. And I've experienced all those positives myself. For me, it's been uh, about having fun, doing well, and also doing good. The negatives for me come from um, open source development often being driven by spare time contributors who are poorly funded. That leads to reduced efficiency. When you're not paid much, you can only afford to work sporadically and that slows down progress of the project. So in terms of contributors, <clears throat> so, so teams of contributors that move in and out are hard to manage. And of course, a couple of years is a long time in software.
1: Mm.
3: Most importantly, it's actually unfair so the ve- because the value for money for those that are producing is much smaller than the value for money that, uh, that are consuming. That puts a strain on sustainability. Who can sustain a long-term investment of time and effort without material rewards? Your best talent may leave the project um, early. So in short, to me, open source is in fact modern slavery. For contributors it's not sustainable and for businesses and consumers it is neither efficient nor reliable.
1: Wow, fighting words from Rick. Open source is modern slavery. Yeah, you I know you would pick first. up on that one. <laughs> well, that's 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 a pretty amazing statement to make. But hey, I, I think um, you raised many really interesting points, and I want to pick up on like the price issue. I think that's a really important one. Um, and particularly, a thing you've, you've noted to me before is that there's a big difference between free open source software and just open source software. Um, but I think... When businesses are looking at an open source platform, they need to consider that it costs in time and development support, but also that it costs other people time and development to get it to where it arrived. And um, So maybe one or both of you can speak to that issue of business expectations, like are we devaluing the value of good software by giving them things open source free? They don't understand how much work is involved in getting it there in the first place.
4: Yep, absolutely. I think uh, there's a real issue with businesses who, you know, they see something's free and they think of it as freeze in free beer, whereas not as if it's freeze in free speech or freedom. And I think that's something that um, is, you know, sort of at the core of a lot of those projects is that, you know, these are. Um, you know, it's there for the for the better of the community. And I think businesses just look at, you know, something costs X or something's free, therefore it must uh, not have any value. Um, and it's not uncommon for even something like WordPress. People will say, well, you know, WordPress is free, so my website should be free. But really, these things we're talking about tools, and the tools are only as good as the people that are using them. So that goes for, um, you know, a whole bunch of things, whether it's sort of server platforms or database systems or, you know, the whole range of different things that are out there. But I think it's up to us to educate um, clients or our colleagues or, um, you know, management or whoever we're working with to really see the value in things. And I think that uh, from my perspective, any way, open source is a lot more about um, things surrounding a community um, and the ability to be able to to, to sort of learn and uh, contribute. And, you know, as Rick mentioned, there's some definitely some pitfalls there. There are a lot of good developers who choose not to share their code because they realise that it's going to be a support burden so they prefer to just keep it to themselves um, and I'm sure that Rick could probably comment on that um, later mm. but I think overall um, you know like saying that you know we shouldn't use a particular model of um, you know licensing really limits yourself into being able to select the right tool for the right job
3: so
1: yeah absolutely do you want to respond as well Rick or do you Feel comfortable
3: with that response. I, I like that response, and I mm. I agree. Mm. Um, maybe to add, um, the original confusion comes also a little bit from the fact that uh, Richard Stallman, who who, who started um, the, who created the word uh, free open source, he he didn't refer to free in the terms of it doesn't cost anything, as in free beer. What he referred to was the fact that uh, when you buy a computer and you've got uh, when you buy software then you're not free to do what you want with the software. Even if you had the skills to change the software, if it's delivered to you as a binary, you can't do anything with, with it. And even if it's not delivered to you as a binary, the licensing may be such that you're not allowed to do that, make changes, share it with your neighbour and so forth. So mm. um, that's, that's another confusing aspect of, about free as in freedom and free mm. as in doesn't cost anything.
1: So do you see there being a, an obligation to businesses who profit from open source platforms or services to reinvest in those communities and help support that development community? Um, is, there, is that a thing that we should be looking to businesses and educating them more on?
3: Absolutely. I, I think something needs to happen uh, in the terms of f- fairness um, and sustainability. You can't expect people to work for nothing um, like i said that 's the modern slavery aspect of it. The difference with modern uh, compared to uh, old school slavery is that <laughs> modern slaves are not chained to their job anymore, and so they can walk out at any time and This is the big problem with mm. with open source and I can give you examples where people mm. say after a while, see you later, this is all too hard i 'm not mm. earning anything mm. um, i got mouth to feed and and so the project um, loses very talented people and for good reason Mm.
1: or to be fair you might have mistakes happen simply because as you said before it's a side project it's not a project people are putting all of their time and energy into Um, I think Heartbleed is the one that pops into mind for I think Mm. there was a commit that happened at 11.59 on New Year's Eve and that was the thing that created that vulnerability and that wasn't even a person saying Nah I've cracked the shits I'm out they're just trying really Mm. hard to get something out the door and then go have a glass of champagne but because that's not their full time job and then there was no one to check their work. Um, that vulnerability wasn't, wasn't identified. Um, you brought up um, Richard Stallman, and I think that that leads me into a question I've been wanting to tackle, which is this question of tivoization and hardware, which um, prevents those software changes going forward. So um, uh, for people who aren't familiar, this is where hardware restrictions um, prevent uh, non-platform approved versions of the software from running on that hardware, meaning that um, and TiVo was built on an open-source platform and then restricted it to their hardware, so essentially were able to profit from it and prevent further changes, which obviously... Um, Subverts this sort of um, intention of the law, which is to make it free and available for changes going forward. Um, And this has created something of a schism in the community between um, the two uh, licensed versions, the GNU 2 versus 3. So could you guys speak to this issue? Like, do you feel, do you fall on the zealotry side or are you more permissive? Do you think it's a thing that's going to happen and we just need to accept it?
4: Uh, Personally, I think that it's... We're going to see a lot more of it. Mm -hmm. I think we've seen a lot of it uh, prior to uh, TiVo and there are a lot of other examples where, uh, you know, something technically sort of checks off the boxes and everything's open source and it's all warm and fuzzy, but the reality is it's not the same. Um, It's, you know, the people that are profiting of it are not actually putting back to the community. So I think uh, it might be a bit idealistic, but I'd like to hope that the community will go where, um, you know, wherever the best interests of the community uh, is that's what mm. I'd, I'd hope mm. but it's something that you do see um, I don't know maybe for the past 10 years or so you've seen a lot of businesses you know piggybacking on the you know popularity of open source whether they really meet it or not so I think again it's up to um, to us as you know within the industry to try and educate um, you know our colleagues and those around us on you know what's good and what may be worth taking a closer look
1: at-hmm absolutely Rick, anything to add on hardware that gates software um, changes going forwards?
3: I don't know the details of that case, um, but if they started off with a license that should allow everybody to use the software and then went back on that and put protections in, then it looks to me that they picked the wrong license. Hmm.
1: Um well the, the hardware required an approval f- so that they basically said we were, were able to prevent you from making a user modified version of this operating system. Um, so it, it wasn't entirely against I think like it was actually tested in court and it wasn't like proven to be uh, the wrong the wrong thing based on the letter of the law, but certainly the, the spirit of the law was mm. people mm. can go do make changes and that was not what, what ended up happening um, going forwards with TiVo.
3: Yeah, it doesn't sound the right, like the right thing. Um, mm-hmm. But there are many uh, license types of licenses. Uh, I mean, uh, I believe the MIT one is probably the, the, the freest of all. Uh, if something is under the MIT license, you can do literally every anything with it. Mm-hmm. Whereas with other licenses, um, you uh, you're not allowed to restrict it, and if you change it, then you must make those changes uh, available to everyone. Um, things like that. Um, yeah, I'm 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 not a lawyer. Um, but I think um, with, with licences, it's a case for uh, of, of, of horses for courses. And I do believe that someone should be allowed, if they want to, to to, to have copyright and to protect their um, product if they want to. Um, but if you go out and say this is open source and everybody can share and then it turns out that it's mm. not so free, that's not mm. a good thing. And I think also to
4: add to that um, is your data as well. Uh, you know, we quite often forget about that. Um, and there's, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of different uh, projects where, you know, data may be, you know, you're locked into a, a particular project or a particular vendor, um, even though, the, you know, the source is is, fr- um, is all open. So I think, you know, things like um, DRM is probably something that's going to be particularly important going forward. Um, you've got – it's, it's actually quite it's – it's a bit of a minefield when you sort of look at the licensing and the different issues. Mm-hmm. But I think what sort of Rick said is, you know, you want to try and get behind people that pay it forward and that – that are in, that not just the letter of the law, but in the spirit of, of open source.
1: For those who aren't familiar, do you want to just unpack DRM for us?
4: Um, so basically, uh, digital rights management, um, you know, companies pretty much leasing you their content or, or give, distributing content with um, protections around it. So, you know, whereas we're kind of, you know, used to, getting a particular maybe it's an an ebook or a song or a video um, but the you know there's formats that prevent you from distributing that or sharing it even amongst your own devices so it's a pretty hot topic Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it does impact on uh, when you're looking at and I think that's what the uh, GPL3 has a a, a, some stuff about uh, DRM as well. Yep. If you're interested
1: yep um, so the time is absolutely flown so I think we maybe just look for any any closing comments because we've covered most of the things we wanted to touch on um, but maybe any thoughts on moving forward like how do we how do we engage businesses better how do we um, sort of try and unpack these difficult licensing issues whose responsibility is it um, is the job of the community going forward not to develop this the, the community so much in the software but to develop the business partners?
4: I, th- I think so. I think it's perfect uh, what you've just said there, Laura. And I think that the um, sort of the goal of any uh, successful open source project includes the things that surround it. So it's not just how good the code is, you know, how fast it is, how security is, how active it is, which is, you know, a good sort of indicator. But really, you want to make sure that, you know, things like documentation, training, you know, certification, if you look at some of the, the leaders sort of in the open source community, they've, they've been doing that for a while. Mm-hmm. And I think it do- it's not a small job. I think you have to work really hard at it. Mm. Um, and I think you have to look after the, the developers that are there on the front line, mm. uh, you know, that are writing the code and, and help them from burning out and, uh, yeah, that sort of thing, Because what Rick was talking
3: about.
0: Mm.
3: Yeah, to, to me, um, if you want a, a system that, is, uh, that has great quality, reliability, efficiency, then you cannot re- um, rely on people doing work for free. That's what the open source community needs to solve. Um, they've tried it with things like GitTip tip uh, and beer money, but that's what it is. B money. I looked at mm-hmm. GiT um, uh, coming into the show and the average uh, tipper on GiT pays $1.69 per week to two teams. So um, the, 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 the mechanism is there. People can give if they want to, but they don't. So it's more than anything, it's a matter of changing attitudes. And uh, but it's hard because people have to part with the money. It's not like um, recycling, getting people to recycle. Uh, that's easy; just two bins. Um, it doesn't cost you anything. But to get people to pay money is hard.
2: Guys, I definitely like to spend some beer money uh, talking <laughs> more about this. So we might have to do that and uh, get you back here with the sixer um, sometime soon to, to talk about these issues. Uh, Rick, Chris, thanks very much for coming in.
4: Thank you. Cool. Thank you.
2: And uh, I'm sure we'll see you around the traps to, to talk about this further. Awesome. Uh, we've got a few more minutes left on the show, uh, roughly seven of them, and we did want to talk to you about uh, a few things that we found interesting. Um, we do have a, a nice acronym in our run sheet, which is WANOTWA or weed hmm. News of the Week, uh, where we get to dump all that stuff that's not really news, but we still want to talk about it anyway. Um, one of the things that um, did catch my eye this week passwords are a bit of a pain in the butt. I've finally, finally got my 1Password thing kind of working, but it still kind of, like, jumps out at me all the time and makes me put passwords in, which is um, annoying because my master password is, like, super complex. But um, one of the things that could be replacing passwords in the future is Skull Echoes. Um, there's a couple of interesting pieces of research um, that have come out. Um, research at, uh, well, there's two of them here. Um, the basic idea behind the Skull Echoes is that they bounce waves into your head um, there's some conduction speakers and microphones to listen for tiny differences in how sounds bounce around inside your skull so they'll um, uh, play a track or just um, bounce in some some, um, some sound waves. They're able to report a 95, 97% identification rate um, but only ran tests with um, a, a small group of people um, the study uh, tested um, Google Glass um, as a way to kind of um, start doing that stuff so mm. that's kind of interesting.
1: To be fair it's a little bit more in depth than simply typing in a couple characters on a keyboard. Like, you do need to have a bit of a kit on your head that's going to listen to how those sounds echo around and um, sort of try and identify. Although to be fair, it also means that, like, you're going to know if someone's trying to hack your password, right? If someone's, like, putting a little microphone up to your head kit while you're you're logging into a secure, like, online banking thing, you'd be like, hmm, this is a little bit sus.
2: Yeah, that that, that girl's taking my Netflix. Mm. Like, what's going on? Yeah, exactly. Um, So that was interesting. The Mm. other one that was... um, That kind of went along sort of in that um, vein is a study where people were fitted with uh, 50 people were fitted with 30 brain sensors while images of things such as uh, food, uh, unusual words, uh, celebrities were flashed in front of them on a screen for for less than a second. And the sensors actually captured how our our brains automatically reacted to the pictures. And from that data, researchers were able to figure out how to identify a person with 100% accuracy. Um, And it only took around 27 images before they could figure out um, who the person was. Mm. Which is really interesting. I mean, 27 is, um, there's a lot of combinations uh, in that. But to think that we're all reacting differently to some common images, like a picture of a banana or, you know, uh, Kim Kardashian or something like that, is kind of reassuring, you know. Mm. There's so much of a beigeness about a lot of the stuff that gets served up um out there
1: absolutely well certainly um you know our brains chemistry our memory engrams the physiology combined with you know our unique personalities and the way that we perceive the world it's nice to think that that there are still some things that make us uniquely us that isn't just you know (laughs) the freudian id it's like an actual physical thing that's different
2: that is uh that is really nice Mm. it's true Um,
1: it's kind of comforting
2: Something else that uh, might aiming uh, might aim uh, to be comforting is uh, a new feature from uh, Tinder that's been launched in Australia uh, today. I think what's what's going on here?
1: Um, so this is a a way for groups of people to essentially hang out slash socialize through the Tinder app. It's not necessarily dating or hookup in the sort of classic Tinder sense, but rather a way of creating a group of people who you might want to hang out with, and then um, sort of um having a look at other groups seeing who else you might want to hang out with slash get to know and then inviting those groups to create a date essentially um but maybe a little bit less um kind of pressure than that immediate one-to-one scenario so um obviously it brings to mind those classic like oh we're all going out to a movie that you did when you're 15.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Mm. I, that's immediately the thing I thought of um, mm. was um, you know fifteen teenagers at Hoyts on mm-hmm. a Saturday afternoon um, mm-hmm. drinking lots of Coke. But um, I don't know—is it kind of trying to move into the event bride-y kind of space? Are they do they want people to kind of like book stuff? Is it does it look kind of admin-y for you or?
1: Uh, it looks reasonably lightweight to me. Like I think that maybe social organizing, but not so much. Like, well, who knows? Maybe there's going to be the Hoyt special for the 15 year olds coming up yeah. soon. Like, it seems like an obvious ad revenue for them. But um, from from like the first look, and certainly this is only being released to a small group of um, betas at the moment. So I believe it said. Um, Uh, it's, it's only a small group of, uh, lucky love hunters in Australia, but it hopes to roll out globally reasonably soon, but it's not available even to all of Australia at the moment. So we'll have to wait till we, till it pops up on our own Tinder apps. Hey.
2: Exactly. Um, one of the things that we won't have to wait too long for is Open OpenLab, uh, which is being put on um, through Media Lab at um, ACME, um, at the co-working space in South Bank. Um, it's on the 1st of May, which I think is maybe Sunday or Monday, um, mm-hmm. thereabouts, um, from 2 to 4 p.m. Um, there's a, a few, I guess, um, popping along. Uh, Megan Beckwith um, with uh, her kind of multimedia um, art. Uh, Andrew Sorensen, author of the... Uh, extempore our programming language discusses uh, live co- live coding performances and audio visual practice um and there's a few other things that are happening so um we'll post uh, a link to that uh, perhaps on our facebook page um there's also a masterclass um, designing for dome lab do you do you know anything about this one
1: um it is a advanced immersive visualization and interactive engagement. Um Dome Lab is the first mobile ultra high resolution full dome in Australia, which sounds amazing. And I actually am wow. finding it difficult to even imagine what that is. Like I'm kind of imagining a planetarium but with an, a whole digital screen around you. Um but I have you have you seen the photos? Like i d I'm not actually sure what that actual physical infrastructure looks like.
2: No, 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 nor, nor am I. So it's um there's a few things that you can learn. There's actually a, like a, a masterclass um, which um, helps you with content development um, in a, a few ways. So how to design for linear content development, how to design for real-time interactive content development, so um, people moving around a space or objects or or, or, or what have you. Uh, opportunity to develop a prototype uh, in the, the Live Lab and a private tour. Um, so it's not cheap. It's um, $150 for members of the public and $75 for students. So um, yeah, you can definitely get along to that. Um, it's on Monday the 2nd of May um, from 10am till 5pm at the RMIT Design Hub, which has popped up uh, on the corner of Swanston and Victoria Street. Um, looking pretty fancy. Um, we're going to nick off very quickly. Uh, we've been bought into it, uh, Laura and Warren and Joe, tonight. Thanks to our guests. Uh, thank you to our podcaster um, who is um, making us sound good. Uh, we'll be back soon. Um, Justin, do your stuff. Good night.